Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features expert answers to clinician questions on NTREC fusion testing and TRK inhibitor therapy for patients with advanced solid tumors. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Advances in Tumor Agnostic TRK Inhibitor Therapy in NTREC Fusion Testing. During this podcast, Dr. George Dimitri from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, Dr. Alexander Drillen from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, New York, and Dr. Pashtun Kazi from the Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center in Iowa City, Iowa, will answer audience questions from a series of live CCO webinars on such important topics as appropriate assays for NTREC fusion testing, optimal use of approved TRK inhibitors, including treatment sequencing, and emerging data with next-generation TRK inhibitors. For more information on our expert panel, along with a link to the complete program, including downloadable slide sets, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on this important topic. What about testing a common cancer with an incidence that's low for TREC fusions like pancreas cancer, but where often you have very little tissue from the diagnostic biopsy? Is that the situation where NGS upfront might make a difference? That's a very important question. I don't think any of us really know the answer, but I do think it's it is the situation where many of us would choose to start with NGS. Let, let me turn to one of my colleagues here, Dr. Cassie. You're a GI oncologist. What, what do you think about using this upfront for diagnosing, let's say, pancreas cancer, where often you get very little tissue? That's a um, great question. And uh, we'll uh, show some data regarding uh, pancreatic obliterary cancers, uh, where often the diagnosis is made on... Um, endoscopic ultrasound or tissue is often obtained through some endoscopic procedure where it's not sufficient for an NGS-based assay. Uh, in the new guidelines, at least for NCC in the US, uh, they now recommend getting uh, tumor-based uh, genetic testing NGS for uh, patients with uh, metastatic or advanced disease uh, because there is increasing incidence of these subtypes which can benefit more from targeted therapies like the breast cancer gene mutation and in this case, uh, the NTREC fusion, because the survival otherwise is so poor and it's so dramatically better for the ones who have this fusion that we would recommend getting NGS upfront. So that way, if there is a problem, you know you have a chance at getting another tissue, uh, either going after a liver met or some other accessible part where you can get some generous uh, biopsies. Uh, so yes, uh, I would recommend NGS upfront in these settings. Okay, thank you. Um, Alec, there's a question that I'll toss to you as a thoracic oncologist. If there's an NTREC fusion in a lung carcinoma patient, do these patients tend not to respond to immunotherapy regardless of their PD-1 status? Because we know that the EGF receptor mutant patients, for example, tend not to respond to immunotherapy. Do you want to take that one as an excellent? Yeah, absolutely. We're actively looking at that question, so we don't have a lot of data yet to talk to. Um, however, beyond EGFR, we've seen with other fusions like ALK or ROS1 or RET that when you look at single agent immunotherapy in particular, we see a very low likelihood of response. Uh, and that's internal data and memorial, but also a global registry that we were part of. My guess is that it would be similar for track fusions, especially since uh, most of them tend to be highly reliant 
um, on just the fusion and aren't really very genomically complex when you look at their molecular reports. Thank you. And then Maher asks, could liquid biopsies be useful for finding TREK fusions? Now, so let me just say, we have some real concerns about whether liquid biopsy is adequately sensitive to find TREK fusions. My bias is that a negative is not non-informative. If you get a liquid biopsy and you do not see a TREK fusion, there's a pretty high chance you could have missed it. So let me not elaborate on that further, but bring that question back at the end. There's one last question about um, what do we consider high versus low with these, some of these actionable findings? And I guess, you know, it used to be that anything that was less than 10% was considered rare, but for some of these new novel efficacious drugs, uh, pembrolizumab, you know, for colorectal cancer is less than 4% for MSI high. Entrec fusion is less than 1% for a lot of tumor types, but um, you know, the word rare, I don't think we can put a number and, uh, you know, for those rare patients, when we do find it, it's such a great viable option that, um, I don't know, Dr. Dimitri, Dr. Dylan, do you have a, uh, a take on what you consider rare as an aberration, especially when it comes to NTREC? I think certainly 1% is rare, but that's why I think we need at a public health level some sort of a cheap and effective way of screening to figure out who to do NGS on without spending millions of dollars, to be honest with you. Eventually, I'm convinced that the NGS testing will become a commodity and will be much, much, much cheaper. But I think for the next five to 10 years, it's still moderately expensive. You know, when CT scans came out, we thought they were going to break the bank back in the 1970s. And clearly, we figured out how to make CT scanning a commodity at our centers. And I, I do think this will become part and parcel of cancer care in the future. Among patients progressing on first-generation TREK inhibitors, is there any benefit to continuing the first-generation med concurrent with the second-generation med? Yeah, so um, I didn't highlight this, but the second-gen drugs actually are really good at targeting the fusion. They were not designed only to target the NTRAC mutations that emerge with resistance. So the answer to your question is that um, they would work even if you had subclonal resistance and a smaller population um, that had these kinase domain mutations. Um, and as you've seen in the clinical data, um, as single agent therapy, these drugs can work very well. How, how often do you see TREK fusions as a resistance mechanism to any other driver? I haven't seen it once. So we've seen it in lung cancer. <laughs> um, and um, so interestingly, the ob observation first started in EGFR mutant lung cancers, treated with OC Mertiniv, where you've seen a smattering of different fusions, um, Alcret, Ross, and surprisingly TRAC, uh, that emerge at a low frequency um, as a bypass uh, mechanism. Um, and so um, it, it happens also in other um, oncogene-driven cancers that get TKI therapy. And in those situations, um, you can try to do combination therapy um, and see what happens. It, it's a reasonable thing to consider if you've exhausted your standard of care options. And along the same lines, uh, in GI, uh, there's a paper just published by the group from uh, MD Anderson looking at all the liquid biopsies uh, that were done in patients who got anti-EGFR for colorectal cancer, uh, where they had uh, fusions as mechanisms of resistance. So Alcross and along those lines, um, 
you know, NTREC is something that can potentially be uh, seen as well. So for whatever reason, these fusions are also escape mechanisms. Uh, and interestingly, they actually were picked up on liquid biopsies, which is not necessarily the best test for it. So uh, as a post-anti-GFR, we do see it as an acquired mechanism of resistance. Thank you both. Cynthia asks a question I've heard from other practicing physicians as well. <clears throat> do you think the time to resistance on a first-generation TREK inhibitor is driven by how much prior therapy the patient has had. In other words, do patients who have had extensive prior chemotherapies have a shorter duration benefit, or does it not matter? Yep, um, in our data set, we've looked at that, and it does not seem to matter. Um, of course, the medians here are very long. Um, so uh, with much more mature data, we might um, see a, a signal, you know, this is sort of the tracer X hypothesis that if your cancer is more genomically complex after prior therapies, that it's easier for them to, uh, these cancers to develop uh, resistant subclones. But right now, um, there's no strong data to support that hypothesis. Yeah, I think that's really important. So even if a patient is heavily pretreated and you find a TREC fusion, it's definitely worth trying. It still could be an incredible benefit to the patients. And there's another question here. I'll have you read this one, Alex and, and Dr. Pashtun, because it may be that both of you had a different approach to this. It revolves around med amplification. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like there are a few questions. Why would you recommend standard of care for off-target med-mediated resistance? And the, the question that preceded that was, why not go on monotherapy, I assume, with uh, a MET inhibitor and not a TREC inhibitor? Okay, so I'll answer the latter first and say that um, uh, as with on-target resistance, sometimes the bypass resistance does happen only in a subpopulation of cells. And so you still need to control the other um, original cells with the TRAC fusion in addition to the cells that have bypass resistance. So while you could try monotherapy, my guess is you may see a transient response in those subclones, but very quickly lose it. So I would be worried about doing that over combination therapy. Um, the reason I recommend standard of care is because we have very little data so far and really not uh, large trials, prospective data to guide our decision-making here. In the future, um, if we have a, a, a data set that says, you know, a MET plus track inhibitor for MET-dependent cancers results in a really good response rate, uh, disease control is durable, then I'd be more confident recommending targeted therapy at that point. And just to add to what you said, um, uh, there is, again, not directly relevant to NTREC fusions, but there is data to suggest that as you develop these acquired mechanisms of resistance, Potentially, if you do something that's not relevant, directly relevant to the pathway, then those acquired mechanisms of resistance, quote unquote, could fade away. So you could then go back to the target therapy again. Uh, it's increasingly being recognized in different tumor types. So, uh, so doing something that would be standard of care would allow uh, for off-target therapy, and then you could potentially go back to either the first or second generation drugs. Thanks, Dr. Cassie. Does the response to TREK inhibitors change depending on whether the patient gets it as first line, second line, et cetera? And let me start with, uh, with you, Pashtun. Do you want to address that in, let's say, colorectal cancers? 
So most of the data we have is in patients who had uh, prior chemotherapy. So in terms of treatment naive, uh, other than case reports or like this patient, for example, who never had chemotherapy, uh, I don't think the line of therapy or previous therapies uh, so far has shown anything to limit the responses. So I would say the, the, the driver is so robust that the efficacy is preserved regardless of the prior lines of therapy. Yeah, Alex, how about in lung cancer and other cancers that you've yep. seen? I agree with that. And I'll extend that observation to other oncogene lung cancers where people have asked the same question and it doesn't matter. Yeah, that was one of the big surprises even in the early days of Gleevec that it didn't matter if somebody was treatment naive with a what we call GIST or some other name that GIST was given in 1999, uh, all the way through somebody who's had five prior chemotherapies failed to control their disease. If you give them Gleevec, boom, it, it just all goes away. So that... That's what you just said, Alex. If you've got a really potent driver, like a KIP mutation in GIST or a TREK fusion mutation in any of these cancers you've heard of today, it does tend to work. And it's really, it's why we feel so strongly about finding these patients. We want no TREK fusion patient left behind because that's what's good for patients. And we have to figure out how to do that. I can see Patrick asked a question. RNA allows the identification of a greater number of fusions but poses challenges in terms of sample stability. It's true. RNA is more fragile and can result in less sensitivity if the tissue hasn't been well-preserved, if the tissue sat around too long for a variety of reasons. In many ways, the balance between a DNA test, NGS, or an RNA test has to be looked at by the performance of that test. And it's very hard to assess that. I will say that many of the good high quality DNA tests have very thorough DNA bait sets, but there may still be because these genes can be big and they can have a lot of area between the kinase domain and where the fusion actually occurs. So it can be a real challenge. Actually, I, I, let me invite my other colleagues here and invite uh, somebody else also to comment on this. I don't know, Pashtun, do you have any thoughts on this about how your institution deals with DNA or RNA testing? You know, I was gonna comment on the same that uh, at a higher level, it brings the question of uh, cost versus tissue efficiency as well. You know, advances are coming for subsets, uh, but not just enteric fusion, but other actionable targeted therapies that we have now, an increasing number every passing year, not just for non-small cell lung cancer, but we'll talk about colorectal cancer, some of the other cancers too, you know, my, I'm of the opinion that it probably is a good idea to go upfront broad NGS. So not only just from a cost standpoint, but also if you go the reflex approach of IHC first for one test or testing for EGFR, and then you'll test for your BRAF after EGFR is negative, and then order your ALK, and then you'll order your NTREC. Every single time pathologist does that is also a concern regarding how much tissue you have left for each assay. Uh, my worry is by the time they get to NTREC, um, some of these patients, for example, your non-small cell lung cancer patient who had a lung CT-guided biopsy, there's not a lot of tissue to do all these tests in a sequential manner. I think that's true. Alex, you're a lung cancer person as well as early drug development. So what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that thankfully these assays are getting cheaper over time and hopefully the turnaround time will go down as well. I think circling back to the RNA question, uh, something that the Boston group has championed has been doing double extractions of the nucleic acid up front 
That way you don't do a tiered system where you exhaust the DNA and kind of rely on the lysate for the RNA and then you know, deal with maybe not having enough tissue at that point beyond the stability questions that were posed. So I think that um, as these tests get easier to run and hopefully as we recognize the importance of incorporating RNA, then maybe just extracting the RNA up from and doing both tests in parallel, assuming costs aren't prohibitive and payers um, will cover um, the charges, I think that's probably a good strategy to go. One uh, question that, um, if I can start with that and we'll go to the panel, uh, I guess if there's any preference on which commercial NGS platform to use or which has higher sensitivity and, uh, my, and it's a good question. I think my answer to that often is, uh, I think it's important to know uh, what each NGS platform is offering. Um, uh, I think my other colleagues can comment on that as well. There, is, uh, so there are some platforms that do the RNA and they will tell you which fusion partners that they're test in the DNA. So it's important to know whichever panel that you're using, whether it's in-house or a commercial NGS panel, that they are providing adequate coverage for NTREC. Um, I, I don't know if, uh, if uh, Dr. Mitri, you have any co comments or thoughts? Or, I don't think there's any no, I wish I wish I had an answer for that. I wish we had, you know, 100 samples that went through everybody's test platform so we could actually know something like that, but we don't. So I think people just get comfortable with their test, whether it's an internal academic test or whether it's one of the commercial tests. And uh, I, I don't know a way out of this other than with experience over time. And Alex, any any words of wisdom from you too? Yeah, uh, I think it's absolutely right. There's no good comparative data that will direct us one way or another. I do think it is important to make sure that when you look at the NGS panel, that you don't just look at the gene list. Right. because some of these are amplicon-based panels that might find NTRAC mutations, but you're actually looking for the fusions. Uh, so it's important to make sure that you sort that out beforehand. Kind of goes to the next question in terms of asking, uh, is it the drug that's so amazing or is it because we found a real driver? And I think it's kind of both because in many situations where you have an NTRAC fusion, uh, they tend to be drivers. And that's why often, like Dr. Dimitri was pointing out earlier, if you have BRAF P16RE or some other tumors, uh, and even in colorectal cancer, there is some data from MD Anderson group where it seemed like uh, similar to like what Dr. Dimitri was saying, the quad negative. Uh, it seems like the NTREC positive are also are the ones who are KRAS negative, BRAF negative, um, and lack of other actionable findings. So uh, these negative patients do have this preponderance, which kind of is what would be a definition of a driver where they often are not present together. Uh, Alex, Dr. Dimitri, thoughts on that uh, as a driver? I think, I think you're right, and I think it's both. I think we've got great drugs against a great target, which is exactly what precision cancer medicine should be all about. I do think it's also both. Um, I'll note that there are other inhibitors that are less powerful against TRAC. You know, crizotinib is a well-known drug and has minor TRAC activity. We've seen some disease regression in one or two case reports, but really I don't think that a drug like that would achieve the outcomes that you've just shown us in your presentation. Right, and Pashtun, one of the key questions, I'd like you to address one of the questions that came through, um, which is, um, Sandra says, in your patient who started MSI high colon cancer with IO therapy, in retrospect, how do you make the decision about whether to do IO first 
or whether you maybe even would have done better by starting with larotrectinib and save the IL. So what, what's the answer to Simon's yeah. question? Good question. Well, it's a good question. I don't think uh, we know the answer. However, I, I would say that uh, there is increasing amount of data for first-line IO. Uh, the plenary at ASCO was actually first-line pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy and achieved uh, it, the primary objective. Uh, and uh, within a couple of weeks, uh, FDA now has approved uh, single-agent pembrolizumab first-line in chemo-naive patients. Previously, you had to fail uh, chemotherapy or in the NCCN guidelines, they did make a note that if you think that somebody would not tolerate chemotherapy, or in this case, you know, does not want chemotherapy, then you could make a case of giving IO. Uh, and then last year at ESMO, there was data on ipinevo, first line in chemo naive. So uh, from a clinical practice standpoint, again, IO is also, immunotherapy is also one thing, at least for MSI high. Um, I wouldn't be wrong in saying that MSI high as well, when immunotherapy works, uh, it's nothing less than dramatic to the point that at least for MSI high colon, we often uh, are comfortable. And I've seen experts use the word, uh, you know, curative, which is pleasantly surprising because a lot of these patients, you know, the, there's a flat plateau, they come off of therapy and are, you know, disease-free years out. And some of them who actually ended up getting surgery, we see the same as we saw in this case, that they have a complete patch response that the surgeon didn't find any cancer at all. So uh, I think as of right now, if I were to choose, um, I, I would still probably choose an IO-based therapy because uh, that, for that, uh, A, you have the most data and actually it's a part of guidelines. And, um, and also I would ideally enroll in a trial if that was available. Uh, and there are some first-line immunotherapy trials. So that would be my first priority. Uh, but um, if it doesn't work, then enteric fusion inhibitor would be an option. And that's how the current approval is is not in naive patients, it's after failure of whatever standard therapy. So uh, my answer would be IO first and enteric inhibitor later. Okay. Uh, what I'm gonna do is pose to my panel members a number of the key questions and ask for a response in 15 seconds or less. So it's concise. Um, Alex, in off-target resistance, should you combine the TREC fusion inhibitor along with the treatment targeting a new mutation? What do you think? Go. My rapid fire answer is yes, because um, it's, if it's a subpopulation, there are still track uh, sensitive clones that you need to hit. So best to try to give two drugs together. I think that's really interesting. I think the issue might be safety, but be careful out there folks, but that's where the future is headed. It's in combinations. Okay. What about uh, Pashtun, patients with NTREC fusion who have a KRAS mutation or a BRAF mutation, what would you recommend? So the answer is an NTREC fusion likely would not have the other mutations present. So uh, that's why it's in the quad negative or bi negative patients. So that scenario would be more theoretical and I would still choose the fusion as the driver. Yeah, sounds, sounds good to me. As we get into resistance, I wonder if RAS mutations are going to be a resistance mechanism for TREC fusion, but hopefully we'll not have to deal with that for a long time. A comment from a colleague, Israel, who says it's his understanding that TREC fusion inhibitor drug use is not approved as a first-line therapy. Uh, I don't know, Alex, do you want to comment on that? that? That is actually my understanding, but I have seen a lot of first-line use. Yeah, so I think that many uh, practitioners have 
taken a page from lung cancer where we've definitely looked at randomizing oncogene-driven tumors to chemotherapy or standard of care versus a TKI. Um, and we see that the TKI strategy is superior. Um, so um, at least at our center, uh, we've started with first-line therapy. Um, I, I certainly would. Um, I think that the um, clinical outcomes that you're seeing here, especially with the updated data for some of the drugs, where you see progression-free survival or duration of response um, exceed three years. Um, I, I'm not sure we see medians like that with some of our standard therapies. Thanks, Alex. Uh, I'm gonna take this one. Should CNS tumors be tested from the very first biopsy? You know, I'm not a neuro-oncologist, but I would have to say, absolutely. CNS tumors, primary CNS tumors like glioblastomas are such a horrific disease that if you have a highly active driver, it's not gonna be common, but boy, if you have it, you know, you're cursed to have the disease, but you're blessed to have something that hopefully this drug could do something, one of these drugs could do something about. So I, I would have to say, we'll leave that to the neuro-oncologist, but I would say that's a very reasonable thing to test CNS tumors right from the first biopsy, primary CNS tumors, let me add. I agree, and um, just a quick sidebar, George, we've seen responses in CNS tumors too. Um, oh, so course. definitely test. Yeah, no, that definitely with both drugs, with larotrectinib and entrectinib, there have def definitely been responses in kids as well as adults. I think that's important. Okay, this is a, a little bit of a technical one, but I wanted to bring it up. What Jan asks, what can you recommend if a DNA NGS test cannot confirm if a TREC fusion is in frame or out of frame? Alex, how, how would you answer that? I, I have my way, but you know, I, I do think some of these NGS test reports are a little confusing. Yeah, um, I, I think one clue there is often the way it's reported is a little equivocal. You know, they'll say, oh, we're seeing a rearrangement or a deletion. I think it produces a fusion, but we can't say for sure. This is a variant of um, uncertain significance. What I typically do is I pick up the phone and I call my pathologist, um, or I even send an email to the company and say, can you clarify? Yeah. I think that that's a really good advice. We've had that happen a few times. And frankly, if they've done it on DNA, we insist that they then do it on RNA. Um, and, and at that point, if it's negative in the RNA, you know it's just a rearrangement and it, it really wouldn't have been good to start with one of these Trek fusion drugs. I wanna thank my expert panelists here. It's been a pleasure working with both of you. And it's always a privilege to talk about safe and effective new drugs that are this safe and this effective. And again, I don't say that about a lot of drugs, but I've been lucky in my career and Alex is very lucky in his career and Dr. Kasi is lucky in his career because we do happen to have several of them here in the form of the Trek fusion inhibitors. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us today. Thank you very much, Dr. Dimitri, Dr. Drillon, and Dr. Kazi. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Advances in Tumor Agnostic TRK Inhibitor Therapy and NTREC Fusion Testing, and to download the slide set associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.